Welcome to the Confessions of a Codependent podcast. I am your host, Jenny Red Pill Rage Eon. Very, very proud to be bringing you my only non-political podcast. Something a little deeper, something a little bit more meaningful, something I think we can cross party lines in terms of how many of us suffer from the terrible pain of living a life with codependency. On this podcast, we are going to be talking about everything from personality disorders, narcissistic abuse, prevention, narcissistic abuse healing, narcissistic abuse survival. We're going to be talking about dating uh, tips, toxic fawning. We're going to talk about fight, flight, fawn, or freeze responses. Things not to say to someone who is a trauma survivor. We're going to talk about PTSD. Also the difference between PTSD and complex PTSD. We're going to talk about what self-care is, and what it isn't. We are going to be covering so many incredible topics and hopefully discussing tools that can help us along our journey to become healthier, more self-loving individuals who can truly find love in this world, truly find purpose, and truly live with lion-like courage. So shout out to Codependence Anonymous. Go visit the website coda.org. Let's get started. Okay, codependents, I apologize for the quality of the sound recording for that last segment. That will not happen again. I appreciate you bearing through it so that we can go ahead and get to this segment, which is about body dysmorphia and codependency. Ooh, body dysmorphia and codependency. Ugh. That sounds really ugly and disgusting and pathetic. And it is. <laughs> and I'm going to explain why. So um, wh- what is the origin with this stuff? So the reason that these two issues overlap so greatly has a lot to do with the fact that when you have complex childhood trauma or you have CPTSD from whatever multiple traumas you've had in your life, oftentimes you are left without a sense of control. And we as codependents, that is exactly what we are always trying to attain. Okay. Um, let me, um, let's see, let's see, let's see. We are always looking for control, okay? And and it, it sounds worse than it is because for those of us who are dark borderlines, we don't want to bother anybody. We don't want to hurt anybody. We want to feel seen. We want to feel heard. Um, but sometimes the way that we go about trying to feel seen and trying to feel heard is a bit unhealthy or very unhealthy, okay? So... When someone is trying to control their body or trying to control their environment, a lot of times they become um, anorexic, they become bulimic. Uh, Sometimes they will actually binge eat because, you know, food is really the only thing that they have control of in their lives. Their relationships are out of control, their finances are out of control, their work situation's unstable, their living situation's unstable. I can attest to this myself. And so food, for some people, is the only way to control themselves, okay? Either by binge eating and eating everything they fucking want and not having anybody tell them anything, or by starving themselves, becoming bulimic or anorexic, and then... um, refusing to do what anyone tells them so they can assert some sort of uh, uh, autonomy over their own body. Body dysmorphia, if you, if you, it's, uh, it's kind of in that same boat. It's kind of in that same wheelhouse. Body dysmorphia is when you look in the mirror and as a result of whatever your trauma is, You don't see yourself as other people see you, which we shouldn't do as codependents because we're, we, we want to stop looking for validation, but we don't, we don't really see what's there. We have a very exaggerated view of our flaws because 
we have such an exaggerated view of our flaws internally that we begin to see an exaggerated view of our flaws externally. Now, this might become as a this might come as a bit of a surprise to you, but a lot of bodybuilders are actually um have body dysmorphia. Yeah, like a lot of the men and women that you see in the gym that are super ripped, super disciplined, will not eat anything other than broccoli, brown rice and bland chicken. The ones that will not, you know, won't have a drink, won't smoke a cigarette, won't sm- won't even smoke weed. They're they're on these really strict creatine regimens and protein regimens. They are obsessed with weighing themselves every day. They are obsessed with um, measuring themselves every day. And uh, these are big dudes who absolutely cannot see how either good looking they are and, and women too, how good looking they are, how fit they are. They don't see that when they look in the mirror. They see any little fold of skin or any little layer of skin as fat, okay? So that's what body dysmorphia is, okay? And and there's other examples of it. You know, some people have body dysmorphia about their hair or about their nose or about the the their complexion, you know? Some people um have freckles and they think that the freckles are just so ugly when in fact the freckles are actually really pretty. Um and now <laughs> girls are getting freckles tattooed on their face. I mean, it's it's like a whole thing. Freckles are in, but That's just an example. Um, When I think back to what my origin wound is when it comes to body dysmorphia, I want to say that it's twofold. I want to say that the first part had a lot to do with the fact that I was a little bit of chubby. I was never fat, but I was definitely a chubby kid. I was I was chubby from about the age of seven to about the age of uh, 19, okay? I, by today's standards, I would have been considered curvy or thick, you know? Um, I was 160 pounds when I was 11 years old. Um, I didn't really grow into my body until I was 13. And then all of a sudden I had hips and an hourglass figure. Um, but even back then that wasn't good enough because one thing you have to understand about the nineties is the nineties, the eighties and nineties, that was the origination of the twink look for women. That's back when, um, gay men were uh, projecting, they were projecting um, the twink heroin chic look onto the rest of society. And the media was a part of it. The magazines were a part of it. Back then, we didn't have, you know, nobody had apps on cell phones or anything like that. But if you were not a size two in L.A., you were considered fat. If you were not super fucking skinny, you were considered fat. If your thighs touched, which is very, very natural for most women, you were considered fat. If you, um, you know, then this is, this is also when the, uh, the porn era um, really, really started coming to the surface and entering the lives of children because of the internet, even though it was like AOL back then. Um, or you could get it on like, you know, HBO late night or certain cable channels. You know, this is when women were, you know, this is when women in pornography had to be super, super, super skinny and they were all getting implants. So as a young girl growing up in Los Angeles in the 90s, of course I had body dysmorphia. You know, I got bullied for being fat when I really wasn't all that fat. I really wasn't. I was, I was thick. I was chubby. I was curvy. I had an hourglass figure at a young age, but I wasn't fat. You know, I'm still not fat. I have fat on me. I'm, I'm definitely, you know, there's parts of my body that jiggle more than others. 
there's parts of my body that are firmer than others, you know, it's, it's okay, you know, but I know that now. But back then I didn't, you know, um, I got made fun of, I got bullied at school. Um, it was really, really hard. So, I mean, that's the first reason that I developed body dysmorphia. And I think that any young girl growing up in California in the 90s could probably relate to that. Um, the second reason I think I have body dysmorphia was definitely because of my narcissistic mother. And <laughs> if you've had a narcissistic mother, you know that um, either hyper, they're either very hypercritical of you, but, and, or they are completely neglectful of any grievances that you have. And sometimes it's a combination of both. So let me explain how this happened. Um, I remember I would come home crying at night because kids were making fun of me. Um, and what my mom would say was, you know, Jesus made you the way you are. And, you know, something's wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with you. And, and you know, the, the, the bullshit that parents kind of tell kids to try to help them get through it when really they don't know what to do. But what I realized was one of the reasons um, my mom was never helping me improve, you know, in terms of, you know, eating nutritional food or getting into sports or doing anything that would boost my confidence. Not saying that my mom needed to put me on a diet and make me lose weight because my mom has been obese my entire life. I've I've only seen pictures of her skinny, and that was before I was born. Um, my mother, there's something called abuse by proxy, okay? So abuse by proxy is when a narcissistic or a neglectful parent will intentionally send their kid to school looking a hot mess specifically for the reason of making sure that other children are going to hurt your kid. Because where you cannot necessarily emotionally hurt your kid as a parent, what they do is they're very sneaky about it is they want to make sure that you have, that your self-esteem is in the trash. And they want to make sure that other individuals can be used to make, to keep your self-esteem in the trash, to keep your self-worth in the trash. My mom wanted to make sure that my self-worth is in the trash. She wanted me to be so humble, so trashed, so ugly, so unattractive. My mom wanted me to be, like my mom was Carrie, Carrie's mom. And I've said this all the time. If y'all remember the movie Carrie, Okay, you had Carrie White, the daughter, and you had Piper White, the mom. My mom was Piper White. That's her nickname in our family amongst my cousins, Piper. We call her Piper White because that is exactly how my mother was. Intense, emotional, and psychological abuse. And then what does she do when I'm in pain? What does she do when I'm suffering? What does she do when I'm crying? Take it to Jesus, right? No wonder I have a fucked up view of God. No wonder I doubted and hated God for so many decades. Look what my mom did. Look at the impression that she gave me about God because of all of the things that she was doing to me. Okay. My mom was abusing me by proxy. There were times I did not, I didn't have clothes that looked right on me, didn't have clothes that fit. I remember there was one time I went to school without having bathed for like two weeks and I stunk so fucking bad and my parents did not put me in the bathtub. Um, I would wear the same, I would wear dirty clothes to school. Um, and this, this was when I was younger. I mean, I, I learned how to wash my own clothes as I got older, but um Anything that my parent, that my mom could do to make sure I was as much of a mess as possible, she would do it, knowing full well that this was bringing attention to myself, that 
I didn't want and couldn't handle attention, bringing attention to myself that was breaking me internally, destroying me internally, giving me panic and anxiety because of the bullying. And I'm not victim shaming myself. Okay. I'm not saying it was my fault, but I'm saying my parents could have taken smaller steps, little steps to make sure that I was going to school more put together than I was. Okay. So bullies are going to do what bullies do. But one of the best ways to combat bullies for your child is to put your kid in sports, put your kid in uh, drama, put your kid in an after school program, put your kid in some type of mentoring program. Because if your kid's self-esteem is that shitty over something that they cannot control, i.e. weight, then you have to give them something else in their life to feel good about. And my parents never did that. Never did that, okay? So that's my origin wound when it comes to body dysmorphia. All right, so you might be asking yourself, well, Jenny, if you have body dysmorphia, what does that have to do with your codependence? I think it's pretty self-explanatory. I think the codependence comes from having a self-fulfilling prophecy, a view of yourself, which is, I am ugly, I am fat, I am unworthy, I am unlovable, no one's really going to care for me, no one can really be there for me, no one's going to show up for me. All of the things that we say to ourselves as codependents is also what you say to yourself as a as a person with body dysmorphic order, okay, which is also called BDD, body dysmorphic order. I think I think they go right, they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. It's so obvious, you know, at least to me, I hope that you're making the connection. Um, people with body dysmorphia do extreme things. They do risky things. Like I said, I just, I use the example of the bodybuilders. The bodybuilders try to prove their worth by how they look. They try to prove their worth through competition, either with themselves or competitions, you know, that strongman competitions or strong woman competitions, Olympian competitions. Okay. And I'm not disparaging it. I'm not saying that it's not good to be athletic or it's not good to have goals. You should absolutely be athletic. You should absolutely be fit. You should absolutely take care of your body to the best of your ability, to the best of, of, um, of what you have. But when you take it over the top and you start going into these extreme dietary regimens that are completely self-imposed, not prescribed to you by a doctor or a nutritionist or a uh, virologist or anyone who knows anything about, um, what is it, um, allergies. Like, if you have allergies or, or anything like that, that's a different story. But a, a bodybuilder is, they're delusional in terms of what they see in the mirror, and then they go to extreme lengths to try to fix it or to try to assert control back over their bodies, back over their autonomous self, right? So let's say like, like I'll bring up sex and love addiction, which if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to my episode about sex and love addiction. It is almost identical to codependency, almost identical. So let's, let's uh, look at this. Um, Fearing abandonment, number two, characteristics of sex and love addiction. Fearing abandonment and loneliness, we stay in and return to painful, destructive relationships. Concealing our dependency needs from ourselves and others. Growing more isolated and alienated from loved ones and friends, ourselves and God. Okay? Fearing emotional and or sexual deprivation. We compulsively pursue and involve ourselves in one relationship after the other. Sometimes having more than one sexual or emotional liaison at a time. We confuse love with neediness, physical and sexual attraction, pity and or the need to rescue or be rescued. 
okay? This is all, this is all what body, dis these are symptoms of body dysmorphia here. These are symptoms of codependency. These are symptoms of body dysmorphia. Number 11, to avoid feeling vulnerable. We may retreat from all intimate involvement, mistaking sexual and emotional anorexia for recovery. Okay, we do extreme things. We're either out there sleeping with a lot of people looking for someone to fill that void or we completely avoid any kind of connection or intimacy altogether. Why? Because our self-worth is in the trash. This is what I'm describing to you is exactly the type of behaviors that people with body dysmorphia and or anorexia and or extreme bodybuilding do. Okay, we we indulge and then we deprive. We with the pendulum is on one side and then it swings all the way to the next and we never find that easy gray um, middle ground in, in, in between. Okay, everything we do is extreme, 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 extreme. Now, I would um here let me let me get into this so i wanted to bring up a word for you guys and the word is imprinting okay you see my body dysmorphia came from being from it from it being imprinted upon me that i'm not good enough i'm ugly i'm fat i have no value i'm a burden to everyone I'm a disgrace to everyone. I deserve to be abused. I deserve to be taunted and teased and bullied. And if I and if those things are happening, it's because I'm not um it's because, you know, I I I brought it on myself, you know. I used to come home crying and my mother would say to me, well, what did you do? You know, I here I am, you know, in in sixth or seventh grade, just going to class and somebody's writing horrible things about me on my desk. OK, this is like the first version of cyberbullying I ever experienced. And I'm crying about it to my mother and she's asking me, well, what did you do? So what that did was it left an imprint. So let me read this to you. In psychology and ethology, imprinting is a kind of phase-sensitive learning, meaning learning occurring at a particular age or particular stage in life that is rapid and apparent and apparently independent of the consequences of behavior. It was first used to describe situations in which an animal or person learns the characteristics of st some stimulus, which is therefore to be imprinted onto the subject. Imprinting is hypothesized to have a critical period. So, um, imprinting, it's, it's almost like putting a stamp on something, like putting an imprint on something, like you can put an imprint, an indentation on a piece of paper or on a piece of wood or on a piece of metal, just like you would press, like think about your license plate, right? How is your license plate for your car made? You There's a thin piece of metal and the letters are pushed into, through, through a mold, the letters are pushed into the frame and that creates the embossed imprint on the license plate of your letters, okay? Uh, just like a typewriter, okay? The typewriter is using, for those of you old enough to remember what a typewriter is, or maybe even what an inkjet printer is, <laughs> the ink is imprinted upon the paper through a stamp, through a tiny little stamp, which has a letter on it, okay? That is imprinting. The imprint that I received at a young age from both my environment and from my mother was prime, prime, premium fucking territory, prime real estate for a life of codependency, grooming, sex and love addiction, 
and codependency. You guys see how all of this is working? Now, you don't have to take my word for it. I've done something very special for you. You can say, thank you, Auntie Jenny. Go ahead and leave that in the comments. And by the way, if you are, if you are not sharing this podcast, please share it. Please share it. There are so many people suffering. There are so many people who are exactly the way that I am and they don't even know it because I didn't even know why I was the way that I am. I didn't have the words for it. So um, I found some experts that I am going to let you guys listen to. So um, this is not the whole podcast, but I found a podcast. It's uh, called it's by a lady called uh, Marissa Escabel. And the title of this particular episode is called Codependency and Body Dysmorphic Order. And her guest is Rachel uh, Koutnik. And I hope that I'm pronouncing that. So the name of her podcast is the Codependummy Podcast. And I'll put the link in there. Um, these ladies, they're a little bit dry. They're not as, <laughs> they're not as interesting and charming as I am, but that's okay. There's no competition here. Um, I want you to listen to what she and her guest, uh, uh, Rachel Koutnik, who I believe is a licensed therapist, listen to what they have to say about the relationship between codependency and body dysmorphic order. And they're also going to define body dysmorphic order a lot better than I've been able to. So I'm just going to give you about 10 minutes of this clip. Let's go. So you've been hit. Rachel, what is body dysmorphic disorder? Oh, yes. Lots of layers with this question. Um, The clinical definition with body dysmorphic disorder is when you have a minor flaw. So something that is maybe noticeable, but just pretty small to everybody else, or a perceived flaw. So maybe something on your physical appearance that you think is really wrong with you, but no one else even really notices it at all. Um, For example? So for example, your nose, you might think is horribly crooked and misshapen. You ask somebody and they say, Maybe it's a little, like, not super straight, but I would have never noticed. I would have never looked at your face and said that your nose is misshapen. But when you look in the mirror, that's all you see. And it's impossible for you to understand that other people don't see how hideous and ugly you are. And it's almost scary looking. It's misshapen. It's, you know, it's not symmetrical. It throws my whole face off. And so there's so much focus on this minor flaw or flaw that other people wouldn't even notice is there, but you see it as a flaw. Um, Usually with BDD, there are obsessions and compulsions and rituals around camouflaging, hiding, checking this perceived flaw. Didn't I just say, sorry to pause here, but didn't I just say when I was talking about the bodybuilders, how bodybuilders have like a super strict regimen, not just to fitness, but uh, when it comes to their salt intake, when it comes to what they eat, when it comes to these uh, strict um, uh, regimens of creatine and protein and sometimes weight gainer, okay? Uh, Spending hours and hours and hours in the mirror. This is, there's a reason they do this, okay? It's to assert control over their autonomy or to assert control over their environment. And that's why they they have these crazy routines. Or this minor flaw, Um, things like mirror checking. So going to the mirror, (laughs) spending a lot of time looking at it. Is it there? Is it not there? Trying to fix it with makeup, trying to hide it or camouflage with a hat or a scarf or, earrings or your hair or gel or just spending so much time trying to make yourself appear typically it's less ugly it's like how do I appear normal looking most people with BDD don't want to look like a celebrity or this they just want to look normal mm-hmm. they don't feel normal they feel hideous they feel ugly and these flaws or flaw on their body um, 
they become really hyper-focused on that particular flaw that they perceive is something like a deformity. Uh, usually the person with body dysmorphic disorder doesn't always realize that what they're seeing is distorted. And so part of the illness is the person can be on a spectrum of being aware that they're having thoughts and what they see is maybe not how other people see them. Like, I think I'm seeing myself really poorly and I don't think I look great today, but other people tell me I look fine. So maybe I actually look fine versus total delusion with your BDD where other people will say you look amazing and you look in the mirror and you just see a monster. You see somebody hideous. Um, there's no awareness that what other people see could be correct and what you're seeing might actually be wrong. And uh, I definitely have been through all of those phases of completely being in delusion to gaining perspective of, oh my gosh, the way that I see myself might not be real and it might not be how other people see me. And even if I have flaws, which I do, you know, everybody does, other people aren't judging you the way that you're judging yourself. And so the person with body dysmorphic disorder is hyper-focused, is having obsessions, is having rituals, often spending maybe three to three or more hours a day checking their appearance, spending time getting ready, touching their physical flaw throughout the day. So it might be their acne or their skin. It could be their hair, it could be body hair, it could be their muscles. A lot of men have muscle dysmorphia. Um, seeing themselves as skinny and not muscular enough when they look normal or average, but they're not relating to their body in the same way. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? And what, what are some contributing factors to BDD? We'll call it BDD for now, everybody. Yeah. BDD. So there's, this is the unfortunate part. There's not a ton of research on BDD. People are still trying to find, they're still doing more and more research and the studies are changing as to what contributes to BDD and also um, the supportive treatments for BDD are still changing and growing but there are a lot of different factors. So there could be a genetic predisposition to mental illness in your family, and that can develop into these obsessions and hyper-focus on your appearance. What I notice and what I've seen as a trend with a lot of people with BDD is uh, attachment struggles with their primary caregivers. Bingo! And so usually with BDD, <laughs> There are, um, there's usually a disconnect between you and your primary care caregiver. Your caregiver wasn't able to nurture you or be there for you emotionally in the ways that you needed. And so that might be a narcissistic parent, that mm -hmm. might be an alcoholic parent. You might have had childhood trauma of sexual abuse or physical abuse, yep. emotional neglect. Um, and often that lack of attachment gets focused inward. And the control, you know, when you think of BDD, it's similar to OCD in some ways where there are obsessions and compulsions and there's anxiety. So there's a need to control and have control. What did I tell you? Appearance. What did I tell you? Focus on your physical appearance. And so OCD that- OCD is- OCD is obsession, obsession, obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, codependent. Yeah, so you're helping. <laughs> so similar to OCD, and then also, can you help just expand? In former shows, there's been mention of narcissistic parenting, alcoholism, different types of abuse. Dear listeners, we will continue to enlighten you on that. <laughs> Not the focus today, but can you expand on? What the fuck is an attachment issue? It sounds yeah. like something in an email. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's a little bit like an email. It could get lost. It might attach, it might not attach. It might make it, it might not make it. Um, but attachment, so when we think of attachment, it's our bonding 
towards somebody. And we learn our attachment from our primary caregivers as children. So if we had parents that were able to, you know, if we're crying and they soothe us and they, they come over and they're, they hold us and they hug us and they tell you, oh, I love you, I'm here for you, it's okay, and we feel safe again. But sometimes we can have parents who don't pick us up, who don't soothe us, who, you know, are busy, who aren't even there. Um, and we're left to cry on our own and we're not soothed. And we start to distrust our primary caregivers and the world starts to feel really scary and our emotions feel really big. And so as we grow up and become adults, there are those different attachment styles. So secure is that healthy attachment where we're okay alone. We're not dependent, too dependent on other people. We understand we're separate from others. We can soothe ourselves. Uh, we can set boundaries. We can ask for what we need. And mostly our needs are met. We can ask for what we need and believe and trust that somebody can help meet those needs. And if they can't, we don't take it too personally. You know, we can then go meet our needs somewhere else. So there's more of a secure attachment in that way. But a lot of people with EDD have either anxious attachment styles or avoidant attachment styles where they don't trust that the other person is going to meet their needs, but they want their needs met. And so there can be overly attaching to somebody, reassurance seeking, being overly pleasing. But then we can also be avoidant where we don't trust the person. We want to be close, but the closer somebody gets to you, it's like, I, I can't handle it. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't know how to do this. It's uncomfortable. Even if it's healthy, it could be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're going to stop with uh, Codependent Dummy with Marissa Escabel and licensed therapist Rachel Kouchik. But I just wanted you to hear it from someone else's mouth. I, I don't want you to think that I'm not credible in terms of me having researched the things that I say. So, <laughs> um, but what, what she's talking about is just totally confirmation of everything that I've seen in my life. You know, when I was really young, like 18, 19, 20, I used to have this friend who was actually anorexic. And she, at the age of like 18, explained this to me very, very well, exactly like what the um, therapist has said. Um, you either have a, an avoidant or an anxious attachment, and as a result, you will do anything, whether it be healthy or not, to have um, strength and autonomy over your own body. You will do absolutely anything to have autonomy over your own body. You will do anything to have control over your own body, okay? And where it comes into play with codependency is if we are controlling others in order to get a false sense of control over ourselves. So that's something we as, as codependents really, really, really need to look very, very closely at. It's something that I struggle with is knowing where does, where does your, where do your needs, your wants and your desires stop and where do mine begin? Where do my needs, wants and desires stop and where do yours begin? You know, like, um, I'm not going to talk in depth about it, but like for me, it's, is sex. Like that is a huge issue for me. I absolutely fucking hate casual sex. And it becomes this catch 22 when I'm dating because it's like, if I don't have sex, that person's going to think I'm a prude. That person's going to think I'm withholding. That person's going to think that I'm uh, playing games, that person's going to think I'm not serious, you know, but if I do have sex, I risk losing m my self-respect, I'm, I'm increasing my body count, I'm going to feel like shit about it the next day, I'm going to feel, I'm not going to even look at that person, I'm not going to look at that man the same, because now I've given into something that I wasn't ready to give into, and now I'm resenting them, and in the end, nine out of 10 men that are attracted to me all seem to have avoidant, avoidant attachment styles. So what they do, what do they do? They love bomb me. They make me feel great. They 
pour the compliments on me very thick. And of course, my inner codependent is looking for that validation. So I, I accept it. I let down my guard. And over time, eventually we make love. That person loses interest because now they've hit the goal. Now they've hit their target. Now they've gotten the prize. And for the next six weeks, what happens? We have sex here and there. The dates, the courtship starts dwindling away. The attention starts dwindling away. And I'm right back at square one. Uh, You know, between three months and six months, I'm right back at square one single again with a broken heart because here I am thinking that I waited for this man or I made this man wait for me and he was just he was just you know novelty seeking and thrill seeking and chemistry chasing anyway you know it's hard for someone like me to know where to draw lines and that's what we do as codependents and that's what we do as people with body dysmorphia it's always this extreme of pendulums I'm out there having a bunch of sex, not not me, not me, but you know, a lot of people they'll go out there, they'll have a bunch of sex, they'll do anything they can to validate themselves and to feel good because they feel like shit about themselves when they look in the mirror, so they'll go out there and do anything they can to feel good. And then it feels like shit and then what do they do? They clam up, you become a hermit, you you deprive yourself emotionally, you deprive yourself of affection, you deprive yourself of social interaction with the opposite sex or just socializing in general. And it's just this whole fucking mess. It's a whole fucking mess. So real quick before we uh, wrap this episode up, I want to make more of an effort to honor our codependency goddess, Alanis Morissette. I want to honor her a little bit more. I want to honor her at the end of every single episode by reading to you a some lyrics of a song that I think are very applicable to what the topic is. And this song is one that always makes me cry. This is from the supposed former Infatuation Junkie album. And the name of the song is That I Would Be Good. Okay. Here are the lyrics. That I would be good even if I did nothing. That I would be good even if I got the thumbs down. That I would be good if I got and stayed sick. That I would be good even if I gained 10 pounds. That I would be fine even if I went bankrupt. That I would be good if I lost my hair and my youth. That I would be great if I was no longer queen. That I would be grand if I was not all-knowing. That I would be loved even when I numb myself. That I would be good even when I am overwhelmed. That I would be loved when I was fuming. That I would be good even if I was clinging. That I would be good even if I lost my sanity. That I would be good with or without you. This is the place that we as codependents are trying to get to. Now imagine, like, take away all of your own shit, all of your own past, all of your own guilt, all of your own shame, all of the times that you've been humiliated. I want you to take all of that away. We're going to get real John Lennon here. I want you to imagine a world in which you, me, us, where we could see ourselves as being good despite whatever the hell we're going through. For those of us with codependency, we are constantly trying to prove our worth. What if you took all of that away? What if you could look in the mirror and honestly not give a shit what you look like? What if you could look in the mirror and honestly not hate yourself if you lost all your money? What if you could look in the mirror and be totally satisfied with who you are if you weren't the best at your job or the best on the internet or if your videos aren't going viral anymore. 
and you're not the new hot young uh, influencer anymore. What if you could look in? The, what if we lived in a world where you could, where people could still love you even when you have your rage, and you're angry, and you lose your sanity for a couple of moments, a couple of days. What if you had a network, a, a support system, a family that supported you and loved you despite you not knowing all the answers? Imagine being able to look in the mirror and feeling fucking good enough. Imagine being able to walk into a job interview and feeling fucking good enough. Imagine going on a date and not and not thinking that you need to fawn over this person in order to keep them in your life. Imagine going on a date and not really even caring whether or not this person likes you. Imagine dating someone and not caring whether they stick around or not because you're so secure in yourself that if someone isn't treating you the way you want, you can let them go with with no regret. Imagine that, that I would be good, that you would be good. Okay, so this episode's getting a long, getting a little long. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. I think I've said everything there I, there needs to be said. I think, um, I think that uh, we we've, we've all hopefully we all have a good grasp on on how these things connect. But if if nothing else, I want you all to understand that there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's hope. Once you identify your origin wound. And once you start doing your shadow work, reparenting your inner child, embracing your inner child, having developing more self-awareness and, you know, working on your coping mechanisms, I promise you that's really all it takes. See, the great thing about the disease that we have is that we don't need drugs. We don't need shock therapy. We don't need years, we don't need decades and decades of, of, uh, of uh, talk therapy and psychotherapy. We can fix this. If you work the steps, you can fix this. If you know how to ground yourself, you can fix this. If you reach out to other people in this community, they can help you fix this. But you got to work the steps because they do work. They do work. Now, I'm not saying, you know, there aren't there aren't other ways. I mean, some people have had more severe abuse than others. But the great thing about our abuse is that it's all in our head. It's all in our head. Everything that we suffer from as codependents is all because of memories. It's not because of anything that's happening right now. We're safe now. There's no threat anymore. We're grown-ups now. We can go back and be the hero for our inner child that we need to be. I can go back. I'm going to cry. I can go back and comfort that little 11 and 12-year-old girl who didn't get any comfort. I can go back and tell my 13, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old self that you don't need to have sex with boys. You don't need to talk to boys. You don't need to chase boys in order to be whole, in order to feel good about yourself. I can go back and tell my 16-year-old self, You're not, you don't need alcohol to self-soothe. You don't need marijuana to self-soothe anymore. You're free. My whole childhood, I felt like I was in prison. My whole adulthood, I felt like I was in prison to these feelings. I'm not in prison anymore. I'm free. 
And once we understand that as codependents, we're golden. We're golden. Now, I'm not saying you don't still need to read books and listen to podcasts and have accountability and maybe get a sponsor or a best friend that you can talk to about these things. I'm not saying that you're that you're you're going to ride off into the sunset and everything's going to be perfect, but you're free, which means you get to make the choices now. I get to choose what influences me and what doesn't. I get to turn off the TV. I get to turn off social media. I get to turn off my phone when looking at these Instagram chicks is making me feel bad about myself the way that looking at Cindy Crawford made me feel like shit about myself in the 90s. I get to turn that off. I get to look in the mirror and I get to decide, you know what? My curves are beautiful. My flaws are beautiful. My stretch marks, my, my scars from, uh, from injuries, they're still beautiful. My face is beautiful. My hair is beautiful. I get to decide that now. Nobody decides that for me. I get to decide if I am going to allow a narcissist in my life. If I'm going to allow an alcoholic in my life. If I'm going to allow a attention-seeking, chemistry-chasing, novelty-chasing man in my life who's just going to use me for three to six months and then dip. I get to choose whether or not I want someone like that around. I get to take the, pre- the preventative measures. I get to exercise wisdom and discernment when I date and when I try to make friends with people or when I try to go get a job. I get to decide that. Nobody else fucking decides that for me. It's a good place to be, codependents, and I hope that you're coming there with me. I really want to hear from you. I, I've, I'm looking at the demographics here, okay? I've got listeners in America, Canada, England. I'm happy you're listening. I want you to leave comments. I want you to know, I want to know if you can relate to anything. Please go on uh, Apple Podcasts and leave a rating. Leave a comment. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you're going through. Talk to me. Let me know you're out there. I know you're listening. I see I see the numbers. <laughs> I get analytics. I can see them. Let me know you're listening. Share this podcast with other codependents that you know are suffering. Share this podcast with other addicts that you know are suffering. Love addicts or sex addicts that don't even know that they're love and sex addicts. They just keep going from person to person to person to person to person and they never figure out what's wrong with them. That's what 12 step is here for. Sexual assault survivors anonymous. We got that too. If you're a sexual assault survivor, the chances of you having body dysmorphia are pretty fucking high. They're pretty fucking high. All right. With that being said, thank y'all. Y'all stand tall. Y'all keep doing what you're doing. Keep listening. Keep working the steps. It works if you work it.